You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Lori Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, a look at family-owned companies and IR, why Twitter is using a blog to connect with investors, and a roundup of some recent studies. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast. It's a weekly roundup of the top headlines from around the world of investor relations. And there are just three of us in the pod today. I'm with Tim Heeman and Condi Stamont-Petit today. Hi, guys. Good morning. Hello, hello. hello. Um, this week on the podcast, I thought we could start by talking about the potential discovery of an alien superstructure. That's right, ladies and gents. It's a bit of a dramatic phrase, though. Um, astronomers at Penn State University have observed a large blip on their uh, the Kepler Space Telescope they've been looking through. Um, when looking at a faraway star, uh, snappily named KIC 8462852, we all know it well. Um, it's only 1,480 light years away, um, but alarmingly, it's been quite strongly suggested that said blip could be a space debris or a cluster of you know early formed planets, or there's a very real possibility that it might be some kind of enormous alien-built sphere structure. Jason Wright, who's a professor at Penn State, said aliens should always be the very last hypothesis you consider, which is good to hear, uh, but this looked like something that you would expect an alien civilization to build. The question, surely, is how quickly will IR teams jump on some investor outreach program for other solar systems? I mean, surely there's some great potential for really diversifying your shareholder base with alien superstructure owning investors. Yeah, I can foresee minority alien abuse. I think this story is terrifying. I think we've been led to believe that when we do discover some extraterrestrial life, it'll be, you know, some sort of gloop hanging off a ceiling in in, in a cave in Mars somewhere. But now we've been told that there might be an alien superstructure out there. It's all a bit too much like um, Interstellar or Event Horizon or something like that for me. (laughs) And, you know, I, I'm quite oddly surprised, even if the, you know, our impending doom is just around the corner. Just the idea of seeing, seeing space. I think it would be spookier if it was completely deserted, if they'd been maybe all murdered horribly. Anyway, we'll keep you up to date, because obviously the Ticker Podcast will be the first place you come to to hear about um, extraterrestrial developments. Well, look, we're going to move a little bit closer to home, but still, um, as far as we're concerned, a bit of a bit of a foreign market. Connie, so you've been looking over the last couple of weeks into family-owned businesses, which I guess are more of a, more of a phenomenon over in Southeast Asia. Who have you been speaking to? Yes, I had a great interview with John Ryan, who's the, the head of IR at First Pacific, a Hong Kong-listed holding firm that belongs to the Indonesian-Chinese f- family Selim. Uh, Ryan used to be a journalist, actually, at Bloomberg and Dow Jones, and uh, he was hired to be the company's storyteller, as, as he puts it. And it can't be very easy to do IR at a family-owned business. Well, Ryan said that family-owned businesses indeed uh, don't enjoy a very good reputation, in the sense that the setting immediately brings up a suspicion of minority shareholder abuse. But he says his firm is lucky because the chairman, Anthony Salim, is pretty much hands-off and lets the CEO, you're never going to guess the name of the CEO, <laughs> Manuel Pangalinen, oh, wow. run the show. <laughs> the one week garnets away and there's a, an actual CEO with a surname Pangolin. Pangolinen. So the company is seen as independently and professionally managed. He says, quote, yes, we are family owned, but the biggest voices in our shareholder base are those of our um, institutional holders, not the Salim Group. And the, uh, the Hong Kong exchange, it, it provides some help in reassuring potential investors. 
Yes, Ryan points out that uh, property rights are very well respected in Hong Kong, and um, importantly, they're, they're also seen as such, which helps. Ryan takes his three executive directors on international roadshows two or three times a year, and now they have about half of their institutional shareholders in the U.S. and uh, 20% in Singapore. Uh, so what does he tell prospective shareholders? How does he get them on side? Well, he had a quite interesting comment, actually. Um, he said that being family-owned can be an advantage for your outreach because it gives you a, a good story to tell. So for First Pacific, here it goes. Oh, you're about to tell the story. Yes. When General Suharto was trying to throw the Dutch out of Indonesia, there was one rice merchant who was willing to supply him on credit. <laughs> and then he carries on to explain how the family built their fortune. And he highlights that communicating with fund managers isn't only about financials. He says, quote, So you make a story out of it, and you pull them in, and you make them feel some kind of sympathy for the firm. And you haven't even mentioned a number yet. That's interesting. And even, I mean, I guess, God, there's no there's no saving companies, even when the numbers are impressive, and they're meant to be in, com- in countries where everything's very well controlled. I mean, you know, Volkswagen is a good example recently, right? You know, I can't imagine a family-owned business is much worse than that spot. Well, yes, indeed. Ryan is, was a bit shocked with, uh, with uh, what happened in, in um, what he calls the, the most fair and objective market in the world. I was talking to someone who works at a uh, family-owned company in Thailand recently, and he said another one of the challenges for IR is you have very uh, enthusiastic uh, CEO who's maybe only worked at that company, doesn't have a lot of public company experience otherwise. And so when they're talking with investors, they're very, very um, positive about the company, but it's maybe um, you have, have to work a little bit harder as the IRO to keep them on the right side of uh, disclosure rules. Yes, well, in fact, I, I also spoke to uh, Mike Garcia from uh, Ayala Land, the um, uh, Philippine-based uh, property developer, and he said that he was indeed um, in charge, that it was a, a big task, one of his big tasks to um, brief senior management to, to, for what he calls investor interface. Well, interestingly enough, I've been looking at another way of interfacing with investors, to use that uh, very sexy phrase indeed. Um, the, there was the news last month that Twitter was starting up an investor relations blog. Um, and now there are a lot of companies that already publish you know, stakeholder or public-facing websites to give a bit of personal insight into a company's activities or provide more context or detail around company news. But not many have uh, an entire blog focused on their investment communities. Um, and they can provide... Uh, and there's great potential there for companies to add credibility, transparency, our favorite word, uh, and personal, uh, a personal interest angle to their shareholder communications. So I spoke to um, Cheryl Valenzuela, who's the senior manager of investor relations at Twitter. Um, and she said there are two main reasons for setting up their IR blog, and she might urge other companies to do the same. And she says, quote, one was practical. A lot of Wall Street firms block the Twitter.com domain where all the blog posts are hosted, so our investors couldn't even see them. Uh, we put the Twitter IR blog on another domain, so much more straightforward for our investors to access. And there they can curate and cross-post the blog posts they care about and put them in one central page. So they nick other blog posts from other bits of Twitter that they think might be interesting for investors. And there's another reason Valenzuela explains, which was uh, much more strategic. She and her team wanted to be more proactive and creative about how they engaged investors um, and then educate them about Twitter. She says, quote, we challenge ourselves to find ways to be innovative and really leverage the tremendous technology and resources we have at Twitter to tell our company's story in a more compelling way. So what did they actually publish on the, on the blog? Uh, well, she, you know, all sorts, really. Uh, she lists um, tweets, images, videos, links to press and other social media. Um, but she says that crucially, it's, it's differentiated real estate is the word she used, differentiated content from what's already on their website. So anything that gives a bit of a, an additional insight, a bit of, a bit of color. And she says having the blog gives them a way to experiment with different types of content, very excitingly. 
Uh, and she says this includes uh, product announcement, uh, customer success stories, and management Q&As, uh, some examples she picks out. Um, while recently published blogs tackle moments, which is a, a new way for Twitter to highlight the best tweets some users may have missed, which you might have seen on your phone or on your, your own dashboard when you load up Twitter. He says, oh, you know, you might have missed someone tweeting about the best cake they ate this weekend. I always get, you might have missed, Iron Magazine said this and that. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, and, and another recent one was an interview with Verizon's head of social media. So that was an interview done by Twitter's Corp Comms team. Valenzuela says, original content is best, particularly if created by IR and tailored for an investor audience. And although that sounds time-consuming, it might not take as long as you think. She says that Twitter IR is lucky enough to have 30 other blogs to draw content from, but they're in the process of developing original content, and it's a bit more work, but they're learning a lot from that process. Quote, we'll apply our lessons, develop a blueprint for future content creation. So what has been the, the feedback from investors? Well, Valenzuela says it's a no-brainer for most investors who um, have given her and her team some strong feedback already. She says, quote, they appreciate the extra color and education about the business that we provide through the blog. And she says that another more practical benefit is that it collates a, a range of relevant information in one location. So, you know, important updates are harder to miss for investors. Um, and there's plenty of room for it to grow still. Um, she advises that there are plans afoot for new types of content and wider campaigns to be introduced soon. She says, stay tuned which we will absolutely will bring you any any updates of exciting new stuff going on there i think ir blogs are a really interesting area i think when you when you think about what people can do with them you know you're getting lots of questions from investors and it's a place where you can you know answer some of those common questions you're getting so when people have set them up they seem really useful but uh, despite that not many companies have actually done it and i think it's usually only tech companies i think it's not surprising that it's twitter that's done this in the past we've seen companies like Arm, um, the chip manufacturer, and Dell when it was public doing blogs as well. It's normally just tech companies which are used to blogging anyway that get into IR blogging, even though I think IR blogging is potentially useful for lots of different types of companies. No, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head because it's, it's, a, it's a lot of extra time and resources you're putting into it. And if you've already got the bloggers and the, the, blo the information there, and I guess if you work in an industry which naturally has a natural predilection for blogging, it all, it all works well. But yeah, it would be quite hard to dedicate someone full time to doing it, which you'd probably have to do otherwise. Well, that's enough about uh, my Twitter story. Tim, I think you've, had, you've got a couple of updates from kind of around the web, some research and some news about Goldman Sachs after last week's update. Yeah, first of all, I thought we could do an update on the uh, Goldman Sachs disclosure change. Uh, last week, it was announced in a news story that Goldman would stop using a newswire and would disseminate its results on the website and then publicize them over Twitter. That happened yesterday, so we can kind of have a look back and see how it went. Uh, in terms of their Twitter use, they didn't actually do much. Oh. Uh, certainly no live tweeting of results, if we, we've seen with other companies. Uh, they put one tweet out linking to the results itself, and then they put a second tweet out, which rounded up as much of the results as they could fit into 140 characters. Extensive then. Yeah, it was quite, <laughs> it was quite tight. And um, what's been the reaction from around the web? Well, I haven't seen any stories from people complaining that they were unable to access the, the results, and that was probably the main risk that they were facing. So they seem to have got away with that. Uh, one blog by IR firm Catalyst Global, who's been watching this closely has pointed out that on some news and trading platforms, uh, there was coverage of the results by journalists, but there wasn't an easy way to click through to the full results text. And that has been the case in previous quarters when the results have been sent out on the wire. Another point is that as far as I can tell, Goldman didn't post any announcement itself that it was going to make this change. Um, perhaps it sent out an email to its investors that I didn't see. But uh, it seems to me that if you're going to make a major change like this, it seems advisable for the company to officially announce it in some way. So when you go to their IR webpage, you can see this is what they're going to do at their next results. However, there doesn't seem to be an announcement of that kind on their website. And the only way we found out about it in advance was through an unnamed source in a news story. 
maybe they were relying on um, everyone else disseminating the information for them. Uh, what else has been going on this week? What else have you been looking at? There's a lot of focus on proxy advisors at the moment. With uh, There's been renewed criticism recently from the likes of Norges, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, about conflicts of interest. Um, and people like the IR Society have been talking about proxy advisor processes, whether they give companies enough time to check their reports, whether they can easily put out corrections and so on. And in that context, there's been a very uh, interesting piece of research has come out, which has looked at the question of how influential, how powerful actually are proxy advisory firms. And the research that the conclusion comes to is actually their power may be overstated. Only 20% of institutional investors uh, say they use the proxy voting policy of an, of an advisory service when voting. Uh, this was a survey of just over 1,000 investors conducted by a UK-based firm Proxy Insight. Um, that being said, proxy advisor use is still quite widespread, right? Yes. While the investors say they don't rely on the policies of the advisors, almost half of the respondents say they do use the services of at least one proxy advisory firm. For example, for research purposes or for recommendations which then they can adapt into their own policies. People are worried about the mass outsourcing of voting policy to advisors. That's one of the main issues. While this survey shows that proxy advisor use is widespread, uh, the conclusion we can draw is that the final decision is usually made by the investor itself. How interesting. Is there any, any other news to report? Uh, one other thing from our website this week. There's a report out from NASDAQ um, which has shed some light on the fact that the world's largest sovereign wealth funds in oil-producing nations have been selling European equities. One of the reasons for this, unsurprisingly, has been to maintain their own sort of spending programs while dealing with the fall in the oil price. Uh, sales of European equities by Norges, um, the Saudi Arabian Monetary Agency and the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority began in May and have accelerated in the third quarter, says Nasdaq in the report. And is there any advice offered by the report? What can companies do if they're being sold up? Well, the simple message from the report authors is to get in touch with uh, these investors and try to retain your presence in the shareholder base. Obviously, <laughs> easier said than done. But it's true that keeping up open lines of communication is going to give companies the best chance. Well, we'll have to ask our Sovereign Wealth Fund expert, Garnet, when she's back in the office next week. She's away in Italy at the moment, as she's told us repeatedly. I thought she was the Mifid expert. I think she's the everything expert. I think we can just give her the, all, the, all the stuff that we don't want to look into in too much detail. We can ask Garnet to flesh out for us. Um, a couple more things to mention happening over the next couple of weeks. On Wednesday, October the 28th, uh, IR Magazine is hosting a webinar called Certainty and Uncertain Times, How to Survive in a World Where the Market is Down and Activism is Up. Um, we'll be joined by um, some representatives from Kingsdale for a, a free webinar held on our website. Um, if you swing over to the events subsection of our of our website and click on click on the, the new webinar section, there's lots more information there. We'll have senior IROs and industry experts discussing the findings of a new report published by Kingsdale on the highlights of this year's proxy season, um, important developments in governments and trends that will matter in 2016. So one to not to miss there. Um, and also next month, um, just a bit of a heads up, there's the Global IR Forum uh, happening in New York on uh, Tuesday, November the 17th of this year. Um, IR Magazine uh, are working alongside NERI for a special event. We're bringing together issuers and service providers from around the world to network and learn about international targeting strategies. Uh, we'll also be unveiling our global top 50 um, and giving out some awards correspondingly there uh, again more information on our events website it's the global ir forum 2015 click on the link and find out some more there um, but for now i think we'll we'll leave you for this week we'll be back next time thank you condice and tim again for joining me cheers larry Thanks. and we'll see you next time goodbye bye. bye you've been listening to the ticker podcast from ir magazine for free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.